Our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning, that will at least be our jumping off point, is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles that you're able there to 1 Peter chapter 5. We'll be hearing the word of the Lord here, even as we have sung the word of God this morning. We also now pay special attention to it for the proclamation of his word, for its exposition. So, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and therefore inerrant word. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This ends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in the Lord's sight. Well, as I mentioned earlier, recently at those times when we have been preparing to observe the Lord's Supper. The week before, I've been preaching on topics that are covered in our Reformed Presbyterian Covenant of Communicant Membership. And last time we dealt more generally with Vow 4, which asks, Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the Scriptures and described in substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? Do you recognize your responsibility to work with others in the church, and do you promise to support and encourage them in their service to the Lord? In case you should need correction in doctrine or life, do you promise to respect the authority and discipline of the church? We saw particularly how that vow relates last time to our proper submission to and relation uh, to those who serve as elders. Today I'm going to concentrate on the first part of that query. Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the Constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America. Of course, it would take a a whole mess of sermons, it would take a lot of sermons, uh, to deal with the teaching of the RPCNA and everything that's in our Constitution, of course. Uh, Even if we were just to go over the basics. But today... Rather, I'm going to concentrate on the matter of the form of church government. You know, we are Presbyterians. And are we Presbyterians simply because we find it to be the most convenient? Or just because that's the way we were raised or whatever? Well, no, in fact, uh, we take this position because we're compelled, we believe, by Scripture to take this position. So specifically, it's 
It's my aim to show from Scripture that the biblical form of church government is Presbyterianism. And those of us here who are church officers, or elders and deacons, have, have actually vowed that we believe that the permanent form of church government is Presbyterian as long as this world lasts. As we begin, we, we need to define the term, though. What do we mean by Presbyterian or Presbyterianism? Uh, the word Presbyterian actually comes from the Greek word presbyteros, uh, which simply means elder. Uh, perhaps some of you have gone to the eye doctor and you've received a diagnosis of presbyopia. Well, the first part of that word simply means old. Presbyopia literally means old eyes. How's that for a technical diagnosis? You have old eyes. Um, <clears throat> Sounds fancier if we use the Greek, right? And say presbyopia. Uh, but it's a condition that most of us experience at some point. It commonly happens to people as we grow older. I've dealt with it in recent years. You'll notice I use reading glasses now when I'm reading the scriptures or when we're singing the psalms. It becomes harder for your eyes to focus on small things up close, right? And so smaller print can't be read because you either have to hold it too close for you to focus on it, or you hold it too far away for you actually to see those letters because they're so small. So you need reading glasses. That's presbyopia, old eyes. Well, Presbyterianism is simply elders, rule by elders. At its most basic meaning, it simply refers to church government by older people, by older men in particular, elders. And not just older people, but in fact, it's the office of elders. We see that in the context of our reading from 1 Peter 5. Peter, in the previous verses, the earlier verses of, of chapter 5 there, before he gets up to verse 5, which is a point here, really, uh, Peter, in the previous verses, addresses the elders who govern the church and then tells the rest, in verse 5, who he calls younger, as in those who are not elders, to submit themselves to the elders. Now, by that broad definition, however, we would have to include lots of forms of church government. If you have elders who are in charge, well, then uh, you're Presbyterian, but that's not actually the case. That's not the way we use the term commonly. Uh, we would have to include Congregationalists who have elders in their local churches, and even Episcopal church governments, where one elder is over a particular church. But to be Presbyterian in terms of church government, means more than just having officers who we happen to call elders. It means having a plurality of elders at the local level, and it means also to be connectional. A local church is part of a broader church governed uh, by elders. So I intend to show, first of all, the biblical church government is by elders at the local level. Secondly, it requires a plurality of elders at the local level. And then third, it is connectional. So first, biblical church government is church government by elders. There's ever been a scriptural principle of respect for elders, for older people in general. Leviticus 19.32, we read earlier, right? You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. So notice how, how honoring older people is actually tied in with the fear of the Lord. If we actually love God, we will honor 
older people especially. And then also we'll see how this translates into honoring elders as terms, in terms of a church office here in a bit. Uh, if you have a King James Version, it probably says you shall rise up before the hoary head. And that that's a, is a, an old word, that hoary, that, that refers to the color of frost. <clears throat> so you rise up, you, you act in honor before those who are gray-headed, right, or who have white hair, right? In the ancient nation-state of Israel, local government was actually conducted by the older men of the town, the elders. The older men of a town or city would meet at the gates, and that's where uh, judicial matters were brought, and that's where uh, legal proceedings took place. You're familiar with the book of Ruth, what happened when Boaz went to the gates of the city to enact a transaction of property so that he could actually marry Ruth. Indeed, this was so common in so many societies that elders ruled that the term for elders in various ancient languages uh, are still used for government offices today. The most notably senator. Senators from the Latin for an elder. And many city governments to this day still have aldermen who run the city. Well, that's just from the Old English for older man, literally. But we see in the New Testament that not every man of a certain age served as a leader in the church, as an under-shepherd under Christ, but that men were chosen who had particular qualities that we've dealt with before, So, for example, in 1 Timothy 3. And they were set apart to an office that was called elder. In other words, there was a, a historical understanding that the elders of a community exercised authority, so it came to be that people who exercised authority came to be called elders. So in some contexts, uh, anyone, any man who exercised authority came to be called an elder. This was true in the Roman government, where the senators weren't all of the older men of Rome, but some of them, and in fact, some men who were quite a bit younger than others were serving as elders, as senators, in the government of Rome. And that was also true in the early church. The office called elder in the church uh, was uh, meant to express the fact that these are the people who exercise authority in the congregation as under-shepherds under Christ Jesus. And that under-shepherding role was also emphasized by the fact that there was another term that was used synonymously or interchangeably with elder in the New Testament, and that's the Greek word episkopos. Literally, it means overseer. But it's the source of our English word bishop. There's a whole uh, convoluted story there we'll go into as to how, how we got our English word bishop out of episkopos, but it actually is just an anglicized version of that same word. And so uh, this word is often translated in many of our translations as bishop in various places. In Titus 1.5, Paul says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city, as I commanded you. And then referring to that same office, a couple of verses later in verse 7, he says, For a bishop, as it's translated in the New King James Version, for a bishop must be blameless, and so on. 
many translations will these days say an overseer, because that's a more direct translation of the word episkopos. Also, we might note that some Greek scholars have pointed out that the word that is used for appointed there, when when uh, Paul tells Timothy to appoint elders, uh, there was a that was a term that was often used for confirming or placing a person in office that he had been elected to. And so there's an implication of an election going on there as well. We see that uh, certainly with the, the first, the, the proto-deacons, if you will, in, in the book of Acts, who are selected by the congregation. But we maintain that Christ has given his church authority to choose its own elders, to elect its elders, uh, who then wield Christ's authority in the congregation. And so we see that Timothy, for example, was ordained, he was set apart for his office by the laying on of the hands of the elders. 1 Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. In some translations there say presbytery. It's a, speaking of a council of elders, it's probably more the, the elders of a local church. And in 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul tells Timothy, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So we see it's understood there that it's the elders who are ruling, who are exercising authority, the governing authority in the church. And some of those elders make their living by laboring in the word and doctrine. So that's the distinction we make between ruling and teaching elders. So people who make a living by preaching and teaching. But it's the same office with different functions. Peter speaks of elders leading as they shepherd the flock of God in the local context. First Peter 5, 1-3 through 3, that we read earlier. The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So that could be bishops. Not by compulsion, but willingly. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So there's the, the leadership, and a particular kind of leadership. In another sermon's time, I would, would be spending time directing the elders to conduct that kind of leadership. But similarly, in Acts 20, 17, we read that Paul met with the elders from the church at Ephesus. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And then down in verse 28, he calls them overseers or bishops and tells them to shepherd the church of God. So there's this shepherding role, this role of authority. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Biblical church government is government by elders. Secondly, biblical church government requires a plurality of elders at the local level. What is commonly called the Episcopal form of church government, for example, we have one man who's often called a bishop, governing several congregations in a geographical region. 
and under him there will be uh, usually just one elder in each congregation. That elder is often called a priest, and our English word priest actually is just a corruption or an abbreviation of the Greek word presbyter. We confuse the issue more in English, so presbyter of course means elder, but we confuse the issue more in English than by using that word priest to translate terms that don't actually mean elder, but mean the one who makes sacrifices, and so that becomes a little bit of a confusing issue. But again, our English word bishop comes from that Greek term which literally means overseer, episkopos, and as we've seen already, the bishop or the overseer is simply another title for the same office of presbyter or elder. It's, it's not a different thing. It's not that one is over the other. It's, it's a, the same office. So rather than being a regional governor over several congregations in a particular area, the bishop, the overseer, is simply an elder in a particular church. So for those of you who are elders, um, your friends who might be in a, under an Episcopal form of church government, you can really get under their skin by telling them that you are a bishop too. <clears throat> but you are. And sometimes I've, I've heard it, at a presbytery meeting or a synod meeting, somebody might pray, uh, thanking God uh, for the uh, collective wisdom of the court that we have each other to work with, and by saying, we thank you, God, that we are, you have not made us bishops. But in fact, that's, that's not biblical to say it that way, because God did make all of the elders bishops. It's the same office. But I know what they mean. What they mean is that you didn't make us all lone wolves, so to speak, uh, having to figure these things out on our own, that we have the collective wisdom of the eldership come together. But as we see it used in the New Testament, the word bishop or overseer is used interchangeably with the word for elder. So we don't have this uh, form of government where there's one man in one office overseeing a whole region of churches, but the bishop is simply an elder in the particular church. And what's more, there should always be a plurality of those elders in the local church. You might have noticed that in the scriptures we've read about elders so far, uh, there were always elders plural in a particular congregation. In Titus 1.5, Paul tells Titus to appoint elders in every city. So not an elder in each city, but elders plural in every city. That is, in each town, in each church, there should be a plurality of elders. There should be more than one. In Acts 20.17, you'll notice that it was the elders, plural, from Ephesus that met with Paul. And in verse 28, he says that they were overseers of the flock. Right, Overseers, plural, of the flock, singular. Likewise, 1 Peter 5.2 has plural elders over one flock. In First Thessalonians five twelve through thirteen, Paul writes to one congregation to recognize those plural who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and to esteem them very highly in love for their works' sake. So there's one congregation with many elders. In the New Testament, there is not a single example of a congregation with only one elder. It just doesn't happen. And there certainly is no example of a bishop 
who governs by himself more than one church. Just not the way it is. Biblical church government requires a plurality of elders at the local level. And then third, we would maintain that biblical church government is connectional. So far we've seen that the local church is to be governed by elders, of whom there has have to be more than one. So we see that what is formally often called uh, the Episcopal church form of government is really not biblical. But what about a congregational form of church government? We have lots of brothers and sisters in churches that are basically independent. They may have their own elders in their local church. Uh, Historical, uh, traditional congregational churches and Baptist churches have a plurality of elders at the local church level. But why would we not call them Presbyterian? Why would we believe that they're in error in terms of, of their church government? Well, we wouldn't call them Presbyterian because they reject the notion that the church then is functionally connectional. That is, that there should be a, that there should be broader courts of the church where elders actually from multiple congregations come together and their decisions are binding on all the churches. So Baptists, for example, often have associations to which their local churches belong, which would help identify a common core of beliefs and practices. Uh, the largest of these in our nation is the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, there are certain criteria a church would have to meet to be in the Southern Baptist Convention. But beyond declaring a church outside its bounds because they're not meeting those core values, the convention exercises no real authority of discipline over its member churches. And they cannot discipline church members or decide cases of local discipline on appeal. They can't depose a pastor who has abused his position or taught heresy. All they could say is, well, you're just not in the convention anymore. But in the New Testament, we find that the authority of elders goes beyond the congregation where they serve. Late in the era of the writing of the New Testament, the apostles were preparing the church for the transition out of the apostolic age, where for that extraordinary time, uh, this extraordinary office of apostle was used by Christ to set up his church. The apostles were being martyred, though. Uh, John would be the only one who actually lived to die of old age. They will no longer be there to govern the church by that extraordinary authority that Christ had given them. Rather, they had already established a church government by elders. We saw that with what Paul was telling Titus, for example. It's already the norm when Peter writes in 1 Peter 5.1, the elders among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder. Notice he doesn't say, I'm an apostle, so as an apostle I'm telling you this. He's actually already transitioning and humbly just invoking his own authority as an elder. He exhorts first not as an apostle, but as a fellow elder, an authority which extends beyond his own congregation. Similarly, in 2 John and 3 John, the apostle John simply addresses himself or identifies himself as the elder. But probably the clearest example we find in the New Testament of the connectional nature of the church can be found in Acts 15. We don't have time to read the whole chapter or the major part of it that that shows this, but a controversy had arisen 
in the church at Antioch. As Luke writes, and certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, and they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So notice the church at Antioch in Syria, which was a major hub of Christianity at that point, because that was the place where many had fled during the very persecution that Paul himself had started in Jerusalem and had led in Jerusalem. They fled, and many of them ended up starting as this congregation in Antioch, and it had become a, another major hub of Christianity. It was actually the first place where people were called Christians. And it had become Paul's base of operations once he was an apostle and, and began heading out on his missionary journeys. But you'll notice that the church there in Antioch and Syria sent officers from their own congregation, Paul and Barnabas and certain others, to gather at Jerusalem with the apostles and the other elders. Now the apostles theoretically could have just used their authority that Christ had given them and told the church, here's the way it is, and just laid down the law. They could have imposed that decision on the whole church, but that's not actually what they did. Instead, they and the elders consulted in a council, a synod, a body of elders, gathered from multiple churches, at least Jerusalem and Antioch, but probably more, and they determined the proper course for the church to take in this matter, based on scriptural principles. And they wrote a letter which included their findings. And their decision was binding, not just on one or two congregations, but on all the churches. Acts 15.23 says, they wrote this letter by, by them, that is the the Paul and Barnabas and the others who were going back. He said this, The apostles, the elders, and the brethren to the brethren who were of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. The matter affected Gentile believers, so this decision was sent to all the predominantly Gentile churches that existed at that point. But you'll notice that the decision of the council of elders was binding on all the churches. The general principle would be this. Christ gave authority to the church. Therefore, local churches have the right to choose their own elders who exercise that authority. When elders from multiple congregations gather together, the more elders, the more congregations represented, the greater the authority. So elders meet locally in a court body. We commonly call this the session or the consistory. <coughs> elders from churches in a given region may come together in a presbytery, or some would call it a classis, and then elders from churches in multiple presbyteries or classes may come together in a synod or a general assembly. There are some denominations that are large enough to have multiple synods and a general assembly above that. That's just the customary terminology. We in the RPCNA have several presbyteries. Our church is in the Midwest Presbytery, and elders from churches in multiple presbyteries come together at Synod. Recent years, Steve and I have been the ones uh, having the privilege of going to Synod. And it is a, it is a, lot, of, uh, a lot of work, but it's also a delightful experience overall.
Elders exercising their proper authority in the church have gathered and formed these broader courts of the church, reflecting these principles that we find in Acts 15, that the more elders gathered, the decisions they make are binding on all the churches. The decisions of these broader courts are binding on all of the churches. So we see that biblical church government is in fact connectional. That's what we agree to submit to in the first part of Val 4 in the covenant of communicant membership. Do you promise to submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of this church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the constitution of the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America? 1 Peter 5.5 Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. The Presbyterian form of church government is the biblical form of church government, we are convinced. So my exhortation for you today is quite simple. If you are a member of a Reformed Presbyterian church, keep your vow. Keep your vow. Submit in the Lord to the teaching and government of the church as being based upon the scriptures and described in substance in the constitution of the RPCNA. And for all Christians, submit in the Lord to the elders who are properly governing your church. Seek out and practice these biblical principles of church government. Let's pray. Lord our God, help us to practice the proper biblical form of church government, to be willing to change when we see that things are in need of changing, but also to submit in the Lord to the proper exercise of Christ's authority through elders in the courts of the church. We pray these things in the name of the only king and head of that church from from whom all this authority comes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.